0: Today, Father, we come in the name of the one who has given to us eternal life, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and through the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives within each and every believer. We're thankful, Lord, that we can come here together and agree together in Jesus' name that you will speak to us individually. That you will touch our hearts through your word because this is your word to us and it's as the spirit of god empowers the word that it has meaning father we do not want to study it as if it were just an intellectual activity but we want the spirit of god to move upon us and to make these words living and powerful we know father whether the statements come from genesis or revelation or anywhere in between. They are relevant to us today, and they tell us of the nature and character of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you will uh, be our strength, our shield, the one who draws us into your presence this day. And I pray that in every class where the Word of God is being proclaimed on this campus here today, that you will be exalted in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yahweh delivered to Israel the message that he was going to free them. And he so did through the leadership of Moses. And the purpose of this was for God to bring Israel to a direct encounter with himself there in the southern Sinai Peninsula at the place called the Mountain of God. The Mountain of God. You remember last week we talked about the fact that Israel set up camp on the plain just south of the mountain. Here is this ball, granitic peak, rising up into the heavens. And at the base of it was this large plain stretching out to the south. And there Israel set up camp. And as Israel set up camp, God <coughs> called Moses up on the mountain. And so Moses went up to hear the words of the Lord. And the Lord instructed him concerning how Israel was to be prepared to meet God in three days. They were going to have a dramatic and cosmic encounter that we're going to be looking at specifically today, in part. In order for them to be ready for this encounter, God specifically told Moses what to tell the people. And let's go back and read those verses again. Uh, chapter 19 of Exodus, beginning at verse 10. Exodus 19, beginning at verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware, that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not touch a woman." And we focused at the end of class last time on the fact that this was a pronouncement of physical things that Israel was to do to prepare to meet God. These physical things did not in and of themselves make them worthy to come into God's presence. The purpose of these physical things was for them to be able to carry out an action that would reinforce in their minds the truth of the fact they needed to be consecrated in heart. God was concerned about the separation of the heart, not of the body. There there was nothing about a dirty body or dirty clothes or having a a proper sexual union that had anything to do with making one unworthy of the presence of God. What he was saying was that you're going to come into my presence for a special encounter. You must separate yourself from the mundane, ordinary things of life. You must put your mind into the place of understanding that this is a special meeting with God himself. And it can't be just taken as a matter of course. Oh, just another day in the life of John Doe Israeli. Here, you know, meeting God on the mountain. No, this was, this was a, uh, a life transforming event. This would be to, as I mentioned last time, in my opinion anyway, this would be to the development of of the religion of the Israels, of the faith that God would give to the Israelites, what uh, Pentecost would mean to the New Testament church. It was sort of the birthing moment of, of God in a new relationship to His people. They needed to have a clean heart. And these other things were ancillary, but what they did was point to that need. And so they followed through. By washing their garments, they were not made more worthy of God, but they were simply brought to a place of understanding that this was a special event and that they needed to be consecrated in heart before they met God. Now let's move on today, uh, beginning at verse 16, and read of the first aspect of this encounter. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and, it, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Moses is one busy man, as you can well tell. On the third day, after the instructions were given by Moses to the people, They had prepared themselves. They had washed their garments. They had abstained from the normal routine of life. At that moment, God met his appointment with his people. The people there on the plain came out of their tents, and they looked to the north in the morning at the mountain, this barren, forbidding hulk of granite rising into the sky. And as they looked, they found that the summit of the mountain was unusual. Today it was heavy with a big black cloud that was sitting on top of the mountain. And from that cloud was emanating lightning, and they could hear peals of thunder roaring from this cloud. The day was otherwise cloudless as it looked around. No clouds in the sky, blue sky as it almost always is in the Sinai. It hardly ever clouds in the Sinai. And yet this big black cloud was sitting on top of the mountain. Obviously God was present. And the people saw this as a terrifying reality. What is also described in the scripture was a sound of a, uh, of a heavenly shofar. The shofar is the ram's horn. The horn that they used in those days has the trumpet that they blew. And it makes that boo sound. And here is a heavenly shofar sounding. Not, not one blown by a man or by a priest or something, but, but the angel of the Lord blowing it. And you could imagine the intensity of the sound as this supernatural shofar summoned the people. As the people looked at this and they heard this sound, they, they shook in their sandals. They just trembled as they witnessed and heard this noise, this sound. And I think that Moses had to say, Come on, people, we're going to the mountain. They'd have stood there all day, probably transfixed, if he hadn't commanded them to go to the base of the mountain. And as as we read there in verses 18 and 19, we have an overwhelming picture of the awesome power and majesty of God impressed upon Israel as never before in their history. The whole top of the mountain literally boiled with smoke and fire. I don't know if we can even you know, visualize it. But this whole top of the mountain was boiling with smoke and fire, like a great, the Scripture says, like a great furnace, meaning a copper furnace, which was the only thing they were familiar with in those days that might even compare, and of course that only on a small scale. And the Scripture tells us the mountain shook violently, as if a perpetual earthquake was rattling this this great rock. And even though the scripture doesn't say so, I think that, you know, just knowing a little bit about physics, that as that mountain shook, there must have been rocks rolling down that mountain everywhere and trails of dust as these rocks came boiling down off this mountain as it shook. And the people witnessed this mountain. The visual stimulation would have been awesome to these people. And then when you add to that the fact that the ground was shaking and the trumpet was sounding. I mean, it was coming at them from every direction, through their eyes, through the ears, through their sense of sound, of movement. And then, after all of this, to cap it off, God speaks to Moses. And the scripture says that he spoke with a very, it sounded like thunder, but it was a very loud voice. Moses, come up! Well, if you were there you'd have been as the Israelis, were absolutely terrified. Scripture says it's a terrifying, a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And sometimes we, we think of that only in the sense of, well, it's a bad thing to go to hell. <laughs> well, that it is. But for anyone to witness God in his majesty, to just be give a little glimpse of his glory, is an overwhelming thing. I mean, there's nothing Hollywood can do or anybody can do to even begin to prepare one for that kind of an encounter because we have to remember it is not only a visual encounter but it's a spiritual encounter with the living God. And if it was terrifying for the people, think what it was for Moses because Moses was not required just to stand there and look, he had to go up that mountain That was quaking and roaring and thundering and lightning and smoking and fire. He had to go into that holocaust on the summit. And what I think we don't realize sometimes, because it isn't specifically spelled out there, where in the world do you think Satan was at that moment? I don't think he was off gallivanting around in, you know, in central Australia or fooling around in northern Siberia. He was in Sinai. He's always where the action is. Wherever God's at work, that's where he is. Because he wants to blunt the work of God as much as he can. He would destroy the work of God if he could. And Satan was there. And of all the people he would speak to, to whom would he speak? Moses, of course. Why talk to some John Doe Israeli over here who doesn't know what's going on, really? He's talking to Moses. He's saying to Moses, you know who up there? That's a scary thing up there. You get burned to a crisp up there. You can't really trust this God. Look at him. You know, look at what he does. I think every step Moses took up that mountain, Satan was whispering in his ear, you're going to die. You're going to be fried. This is not a good thing. But Moses continued to walk up that mountain. I mean, It was natural for him to have doubts and fears. You and I would, if we were there, in his place. But Moses had a foundation built into his life. He had learned to implicitly trust God. He had learned that God's word was trustworthy. He had come to know something of the nature of this God who was demonstrating his majesty in these fearsome ways, and yet he was a loving, kind, and gentle God. If Moses had not had that foundation, there's no way he'd have gone up that mountain. God works to build a foundation in our lives before he allows us to be tempted in these really, or battered in these really difficult situations. And if a really hard situation comes along, we have to believe that God has been at work building into us a foundation so that we can trust him through it all. And I think Moses had come to the place to realize that obedience to God was more important than life itself. If he did get fried up there, so what? Being obedient to God was much better than standing down at the bottom in a whole body and, and, and living a disobedient life, which would have no meaning and no value whatsoever. And so we listened to the voice of the Spirit of God because God didn't just let Moses go up that mountain with the devil, yelling in his or whispering, or whatever the devil was doing without any support. God was there. God's spirit was there. God's spirit was convicting Moses in his spirit and convincing him of the truth and helping him to take every step of the way. God never abandons his people. No matter how difficult the trial may be, no matter how deep the circumstances may appear, God is with us in them all if we are his children. And he's able to to help us the more as we have learned to listen to him and to obey him in the past. What we've done in the past, how we've trusted in God in the past, how we've studied the Word of God in the past, how we've learned to pray in the past, all of that serves us very well when the difficult times come in the future. We build this foundation in that God will work with to make us strong in Him in those difficult and often terrifying times. I think the people were filled with fear on behalf of Moses. They were wondering if Moses would really get up there and come back down. At the same time, I think they had tremendous respect for this man who would literally walk on that shaking mountain and up into that cloud. Because none of them would have done it. Moses was truly exalted in their eyes. And God had promised that that's what would happen. That God would exalt him and that they would listen to his words forever. There's no record here of how Moses felt. But in the, in, in the book of Hebrews, there is a short phrase which says that Moses said that he was full of fear and trembling. Full of fear and trembling. Aha! We suddenly discover Moses is human. He was as we would have been had we been there, faced with the task of going up into that mountain. You now it might be easy for us since we know the whole record here, we know the story from one end to the other, to say, would have been a piece of cake, just walk right up there, God wouldn't hurt you. Hey, <laughs> go back before this book was written. You know? Go back to the time when Moses lived and consider the situation. Now Moses had seen a little burning bush before at that same spot. And that was an awesome thing for him, but now the whole mountain. Not a bush. The whole mountain's on fire and quaking. And he has to climb that mountain. Now he's already been up it and back. So he knows where he's going. He knows what the mountain's like, but he had not been up it when God was manifesting himself with these physical uh, phenomena. Before, God was still on the mountain, but there was no manifestation of his presence until Moses got up there and God spoke to him. But now God said, I'm going to let everybody know I'm there. So God was there in power. I mean, not that he wasn't there in power before, but now he let it be, sh- be seen. He allowed himself to be manifested to a certain measure. I think as we look down through the pages of Scripture, we discover every once in a while, God lets a little glimpse of his glory shine through. None of us in our physical bodies could stand, our untransformed physical bodies could stand in the full light of the glory of the presence of God. Because we live in fallen bodies, in in bodies that are not suited for eternity. We'll be given bodies that will be suited for eternity. We'll be able to stand in his presence without, without being destroyed physically. But God has always had to veil his glory to some degree so that people could have an encounter with him. And we'll see that later on when Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. And all Moses is able to see is the afterglow of God having gone by. Jesus, you remember when he was there in Gethsemane? Only John tells us this. But when Jesus was there at Gethsemane, just for a split second, he let a little ray of glory shine through. Remember that encounter where they came and they were going to arrest him in the garden and Jesus said, who are you after? And they said, Jesus. And he says, I am he. And the scripture says they all fell backwards on their backsides. See, this whole group of armed men, torches and spears and everything going, crash back on the ground. When all he said was, I'm he. (laughs) He just let a little bit of his glory shine through there. John witnessed that. Before God got down to the business of delivering to Moses the ten words, he gave to Moses further instructions concerning the people. You see, God is very concerned that the people have repeated instructions. God knows that we are very dense, and we don't seem to get it the first time. All of you have had this experience in in certain other venues, I'm sure. I've had it, and those of us in the college experience have had it, where you say, this is how you are to do this particular assignment. Spell it out specifically in writing and verbally, and still get the assignment done differently than you explained. And it's not because somebody's obstinate, it's because it didn't sink in. And God wants to make sure it sinks in. And so God has this habit of repeating himself over and over and over and over and over over again as you go from Genesis through Revelation. If by the time we get to Revelation, having read from Genesis, we don't get the point, it's not God's fault. It definitely isn't God's fault. So, God gives Moses further instructions. I mean, God's planning to keep Moses up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, Moses is going to go up that vibrating mountain and disappear into that swirling holocaust, and the last they'll see of him is as he goes into the clouds, and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, you know how the people will be. I mean, we've read ahead in the story, right? We've read it before many times. Uh, At the very least, they're going to get restless and curious. What happened to Moses? And there would always be amongst the people a few brave ones who'd say, let's go see. Stupid ones. And so God sent Moses back down the mountain to reinforce in the minds of the people the sanctity of who is on this mountain. This is the Holy One. And he wants to make sure that they do not cross that barrier onto the mountain. God has set a barrier. He had to put it somewhere. I don't think it mattered how many yards it was or what the angle of the slope of the mountain was. I mean, God set it someplace and said this far and no more. They could go up to the barrier. It was probably just a low little stone wall, maybe just some stones lined up. Who knows? It wasn't something that literally kept someone. I mean, it wasn't a cyclone fence 20 feet high. It was just a marker. And the idea was you could go there, but you could go no further simply because God said. There didn't need to other any other reason. It wasn't that if you put your foot over the thing, you'd all of a sudden get electrified. Bzz, 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 you know. It's that God said thus far, no more. Because God said, I don't want to have to break through to the people. And when God says break through, <laughs> um, we're talking about a blazing fire because later on we'll see where some of the uh, men decided that they were as worthy as anybody else to be priests before God, and God breaks through on them, and they're fricasseed. So, I mean, we know breakthrough is a dangerous thing here. God does not want them attempting to penetrate into his presence, to transgress unworthily upon God's territory. Certainly some would have been tempted to climb the mount. God wanted them to be well impressed. So he says to Moses, tell them that not even the consecrated priests can pass this barrier. And I don't know if that throws any red flags up, but it should. Whoops, where did these people come from? (laughs) I mean, all we've had so far, it seems like, were Israelites in slavery and Moses and Aaron. Now suddenly we've got consecrated priests. Where did these people come from? Well, these are not the sons of Aaron. Because there has been no mention of the sons of Aaron so far, and not even Aaron has been consecrated high priest yet. And they are not the Levites, because the Levites' tribe has not yet been chosen by God, at least as far as the people knew, to be the priestly tribe. So where in the world did these priests come They weren't Egyptian priests, that's for sure. Well, the only thing it possibly could be would be that they were the firstborn whom God had ordered consecrated unto himself. You remember, as we read back in the 13th chapter, we won't turn back there, but it says, the Lord said, Sanctify to me the firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel. This must have been those that were considered, therefore, priests at this particular time. One of the old-time commentaries that deals with the Old Testament is the commentary by Kylan Delich. German commentators who wrote their commentary last century. But uh, Delitz writes this. He says, even these priests were too unholy to be able to come into the presence of the Holy God. This repeated enforcement of the command not to touch the mountain and the special extension of it even to the priests was intended to awaken the people in the people a consciousness of their own unholiness, quite as much as of the unapproachable holiness of God. To awaken in them not only a sense of the unapproachable holiness of God, but their own unholiness. That, I think, is, is the theme of Scripture. The theme of Scripture is that we understand that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. You and I can do nothing and can be nothing worthy of God apart from His grace, whereby He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. It is the work of God that has made us worthy and nothing in ourselves that was presentable to Him. And that's what the Israelites needed to know. They needed to know that as God gave these ten words, Uh, there on the mountain, that these were to be the guiding lights of their lives. They would not, of course, be able to live up to them. And Paul would later tell us in Galatians that the purpose of the law was to be a tutor, a schoolmaster, to show that the people could not live up to the law, but that they needed a Redeemer and to prepare them for the coming of Messiah. In obedience to God's command, Moses went back down the mountain and delivered God's word to the people. Now we're not talking about trotting down 50 steps to tell the people. I mean Moses climbed a 7300-foot mountain. There was no carved stairway. There was no escalator. Moses had to climb this mountain. Well, I don't know what the level of the uh, peninsula was at the base of the mountain, probably not more than a few hundred feet there. So, I mean, you're talking about roughly 7,000 feet that this guy has to climb and descend, climb and descend, climb and descend. In three days, he's gone up that mountain, come back down it three times. Remember, he's over 80 years old. And he wasn't climbing the mountain, you know, with his little stick and going like this up the mountain. God had, of course, empowered this man with youth. Scripture tells us that when he was 120, he could see as well as a kid. He had the strength of youth. So it was obviously God's blessing upon him. And so he walked the mountain with strength. But still, three times up and down the mountain. I'd think after a while he'd begin to tire. Finally, God said to him, after he has delivered the word again for the third time, God says to Moses, come up again, you and Aaron with you. Now, I think the teaching here is quite plain. The people were not to pass this barrier, but Moses and Aaron, and we'll discover also Joshua, could cross that barrier. We don't know how far Aaron went up the mountain. He did not go to the summit and neither did Joshua. Only Moses went to the top of the mountain. But the two men here, Moses and Aaron, were called across the barrier onto the mountain because only the mediators could go into the presence of God. Moses, the prophet of God, and Aaron, the soon-to-be high priest unto God, had been justified by God's grace through faith, and so they could come into God's presence. Soon God will establish the priestly class and the high priesthood. And they will build the tabernacle and later they will build the temple. And the scripture makes it quite clear that only the high priest could go into the presence of God and then only once a year and then only with the shedding of blood. Well, let's turn to that passage in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 6. In this passage, the writer of the Hebrews is, is talking about the first covenant and the tabernacle and the outer sanctuary, the inner sanctuary, and the Holy of Holies and so forth. And now he says, Now, when these things, verse 6 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, now when these things have been prepared, had, have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. They could go in and out of the outer tabernacle at will. But into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, the inner room where the Ark of the Covenant was, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is, the, is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make worshippers perfect in conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The mediator could go into the presence of God. The high priest, once a year, with blood, could go in before God to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, to seek atonement for the people. But that was a cleansing that was temporary. It was a cleansing that was symbolic of the eternal cleansing that was to come, or which, of course, had already been determined in the heavenlies, but had not been lived out in life yet, had not become a part of human history at that moment. And so when Christ came, the barrier was torn down, the veil. And, of course, you remember what happened. When Christ dies, one of the Gospels says that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn asunder from the top to the bottom. I mean, no person could have done it. God just wrenched it apart saying there is no now no veil separating the very presence of God from His people because His people have become themselves mediators through Jesus Christ, the great high priest. We have become priests unto God. And so we may, be, we may go boldly into the presence of God because we have been cleansed from our sins, not temporarily by the blood of goats and bulls, but eternally by the blood of Christ that was sacrificed for us all, and we are justified and made perfect in his sight, perfect in standing. I recognize that all of us today uh, feel quite imperfect, I trust, as we walk here and we fail and we know we fail and we know we don't have right attitudes all the time. We don't say the right thing all the time. We don't do the right thing all the time. In fact, we're ready to kick ourselves half the time. And yet, In our standing before God, if we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are perfect in our standing. And it's that which allows us to go into the presence of God boldly, as Moses did that day on Mount Sinai. Turn back in Hebrews to the fourth chapter. We have that so often quoted passage in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need, which is all the time. Why does the scripture say, pray without ceasing? Because we have need without ceasing, whether we always acknowledge it or not. So you and I can go boldly before God. If God were to so call us up a smoldering mountain today into his presence, we could do it. Not because we are worthy, but because he has given us that standing of perfection through Christ. And that's what he imputed upon Moses and imputed upon Aaron. Christ had not yet died in history, but he had been sacrificed from eternity past. And so what he would do could already be imputed to Moses. Even without Moses understanding those details, the scripture tells us that Abram believed God, and God imputed to him righteousness as a result. And so it was with Moses. And the other great men and women of the Old Testament, they believed God, and, and God drew upon the, the death of Christ to impute righteousness to these people. As they look forward to Christ, and we look back to Christ, he's the central point of all history, And his blood cleanses from all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. And so that brings us to Moses going back up the mountain a fourth time. With Aaron going somewhere on the mountain, we don't know where, and certainly he doesn't stay there the whole time because they start fooling around back down the mountain. And Joshua somewhere in between. We don't have time to develop the Decalogue, but let me just read Uh, the beginning verses of the 20th chapter, because this will introduce us to the schoolmaster, the tutor. God gave the law as the tutor. Paul tells us in Galatians, as I mentioned before, as the schoolmaster. uh, The one who would teach that it was not possible for a human being to be worthy of God, in his own strength. Because no one could keep the law. God didn't give the law and say, all right, now you keep this law, you're going to hell. God gave the law so they knew they couldn't keep the law, therefore they had to go by the system that he gave that we read through at the end of Exodus and Leviticus, the system of the Levitical priesthood, the system of, of the sacrifices and all of that. So they knew that that's the only way they could go. That's why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees. Because those dudes thought they could do it, and they didn't need to have an intermediary. They didn't need a mediator. They thought they could do it. Well, let's read the first seven verses, and then next week we'll begin to look at these. Then God spoke all these words, saying, and notice how he begins, I am Yahweh your Elohim who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished who takes his name in vain." I would like for us next week to look in detail probably at those seven verses, and to see that we sometimes tend to see the Ten Commandments as more simple than they are. And uh, maybe just a list of thou shalt nots, you know. So many people are referring to the Ten Commandments as a big pile of negatives. Well, they are not, to use a negative statement. <laughs> They are very positive, and we'll look at the first two, maybe three commandments next Sunday.